special permission to go in those tunnels. You can walk along the wall. You can touch the stones all the way along. It's long all the way up to the northwest corner up to here. And you can stand on the pavement stones right here. Just here's the, uh, By this time, there's no stones. There's stones all up to here. But by the time you get to the northwest corner, uh, you're at bedrock. Because this is Mount Moriah is rising this way. So down here... The stones are below, the foundation stones are below the pavement of the New Testament. But as the stone rises, or the, the, the mount rises, uh, it eventually gives way to the, the actual bedrock. And so when you're standing here and you look to the western wall, you're no longer seeing stones like you saw down here. The largest stones in the Temple Mount are right here, huge. Uh, you're looking here right at the pavement, or excuse me, at the bedrock. Okay, now, right here, Tony is standing on that pavement right there. And she's looking at a column right there. This is, this is the bedrock. And the, the Hasmoneans cut an a, uh, aqueduct right through here. There's water coming through here. And then eventually they put pavement here. And so if you walk down this way, down going south, you'd walk, you could walk all the way along down to here and we've walked on the pavement here we've walked on the pavement here then all this is underground yet here we're actually underground see this is a tunnel uh, a few years ago i don't know if it was 1995 2005 something like that they opened this tunnel up and it came out into the muslim quarter and there were several people murdered because the jews and muslims started fighting people got killed because they came up, so they walled it off, and so you can't come up out into the Muslim quarter coming out of that tunnel. But you see this pillar right here. Now, this is what's kind of cool. Um, here it is again. Now, Tony's still on the same pavement. We can't see the foundation, but there's, this is a colonnaded, a colonnaded road. This is that road going right here. She's standing right here on the pavement. There's a colonnaded road going this way, outside, just like a in the book, or you have seen it, uh, uh, the Cardo, the Roman Byzantine Cardo that goes through the city. This would be the pavement right here that you could walk on, the stone pavement. And she, if, but it's all filled in. It hasn't been excavated. But if you would start excavating through there, you'd uncover more pavement, and you'd get to pillar after pillar, column after column of the road that leads away from Fort Antonia, because Fort Antonia is right I mean, you're just at the base of Fort Antonia. You'd, you'd walk on the same road Jesus walked on uh, to go out to be crucified if he was coming from Pilate here at Fort Antonia. Of course, if he was coming from Pilate at the, uh, the Herod's palace, he would have gone out that way. So that's, that's why I didn't email you back. It's like I thought, oh, it's like, ah, I want to answer that. But it's like I need pictures and... I don't, yeah, I don't know the name of this one. Yeah, and th this hasn't been excavated. They've, they've kind of looked. They've been looking for it, and the closest they came when they found it, like I said, it ended up being what they they th think was uh, Hadrian's shrine that he built over the tomb of Christ after the Christians, you know, because they were continuing to worship there. So, yeah, that's I, I appreciate questions like that because it's fun to. All right. We forgot to put our little picture on it yesterday in church and people were looking at themselves trying not to move. <laughs> okay. Um, and we're live, Tony? We're ready? Okay. We are in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Uh, we're going through the verses 1 through 12. Uh, in chapter 2... As you see on your notes, we, uh, Jesus had some conflicts. And Mark is moving quickly through material. Uh, and I've got it written down right here at the top. Uh, number one, Jesus heals a paralytic. Uh, and the first, and, and understand this, and you've got to make a decision. You, you don't have to agree with me. But I think these, these things that take place here, these events that we're going to point out here in chapter 2 in review, Jesus is looking for confrontation. Now, you say, ah, that doesn't sound like Jesus. Okay, that's fine, that's fine. 
Uh, but the confrontation is to force a decision. Is what do you think about Christ? He's revealing, he's very clearly revealing who he is. For example, he's teaching in chapter 2, they tear the roof off and they lower a lame man down who can't walk. And there's, there's scribes that are there in this house. Apparently, it might be Peter's house. It could be the house that Jesus is staying at. It could be Peter's house where they, they are, that they're, they're staying at. Um, and they lower the man. And Jesus, instead of just having sympathy and healing the man, he does something bizarre. He really does. I mean, you read your Bible, you get used to it. Well, that's just that's the Bible story. Yeah, but he lowers a man down in the middle, and Jesus just kind of like, your sins are forgiven. And everybody goes, no one can forgive sin. They don't say it out loud, but the scribes are, are trained in this. You don't just go for, forgive sins. The high priests have to offer sacrifice. They've got to go through the rituals. They've got to apply the blood and hope, and hope that God forgives them their sins. Jesus outside the temple outside jerusalem in galilee sees the man get lowered down and and i I'm, i don't know what he's thinking of course now jesus knows what the guys are thinking in the room but jesus i it, it would appear that he's thinking ah this will stir him up your sins are forgiven and immediately they begin thinking no one can forgive sins except god so they make the According to our doctrine, you can't do that unless you're God. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, is saying, thank you. What's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Take up your mat and walk. Thank you for the confirmation. And they came to criticize him, and their very presence confirmed, guess what? Jesus is. And who said that? They did. And so it's kind of like, the, uh, he's, it's not like he's being rude or obnoxious. He's just like, okay, the most important thing here is that you understand who I am. Here comes the guy in. It's like, oh, your sins are forgiven. Only God can do that? Right. What's easier, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Rise up and walk. The next thing is Jesus is, uh, he sees Levi, the tax collector, and calls him to follow him, which is, Levi is unclean. He's a tax collector. He's outside the whole Jewish religious system. And then Levi has a party. We'll say, if I can spell the word banquet, is that close? Uh, Levi has a banquet, invites Jesus, all of his tax collector friends, and other sinners. And these sinners would be people that the, the rabbis and the scribes don't like. And Jesus is there, and they're saying, you, you, he shouldn't be here telling his disciples. He shouldn't be di- dining with them. And Jesus says, I, I didn't come you don't get a doctor for someone that's not sick. He's I came for those who are sick. In other words, Jesus was invited to a banquet, but by the time the whole banquet is done, Jesus is talking about being the host of a banquet. He's inviting these people to. So he was invited to a banquet, turns the whole thing on its head. He's like, what are you doing here? I'm inviting these people to my banquet. And so Jesus has a banquet, which again is the kingdom of God or the, the supper of God, which leads to the next one. They come to Jesus and ask, why are, are his disciples, or Jesus asking, why are your disciples not fasting? Because the Pharisees' disciples fast, John's disciples fast, but Jesus' disciples, they're not fasting. And Jesus says, well, there's a wedding going on right now, basically, is what he's saying. He says, and I'm the bridegroom. He says, the guests of the wedding, the bridegroom's guests at the wedding, they're not going to fast at the wedding. That'd be ridiculous. So, no, they're not fasting. He says, now. They will fast when the bridegroom is taken away, indicating, and, and how, how, often, how often at a wedding does the bridegroom, the, the groom, get taken away? Then, here's the wedding. He goes away with the bride, but in this case, the bride and the groom are not going together. The groom is going to get taken away, indicating Jesus already is talking about his death. So Jesus has a wedding. Uh, he's the bridegroom, and there's going to be a, 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 a feasting. He's inviting them to a party. Again, you see the banquet. The, everybody else is fasting. He's having a party. He's having a wedding. People should be excited about it. If you knew who he was, you'd be very excited about the fact that he is there. Uh, next, he goes on and uses the examples of the, the old wine, the new wine and the old wineskins. And the idea there is Jesus is doing something new. 
He says, you don't take new wine and put it in old wineskins. You don't take new cloth and put it on an old garment. He says, he's got something completely new. He's not like the prophets trying to revive the law of Moses. The prophets, if it was Jeremiah, Isaiah, they all came. It's like, you need to get back to the law of Moses. You got to get back to the law of Moses. Jesus isn't coming and pointing to the law. He's coming and saying, the law has done its job. Now, something big. We're not going to take me, my new covenant, and shove it back in the old covenant. We're not going to take what I'm doing and revive Judaism. We're doing something. It's new wine. It's new cloth. This is something completely new. Uh, catch up. And then the last one that we saw last week, uh, his disciples are eating grain on the Sabbath. And this was, this was uh, uh, crucial. Uh, and, and they're criticizing him. And Jesus uses different examples and uses the Bible story with, with David. But the point is, Jesus, who is the creator, on the sixth day of creation made man, and then as God, God rested on the seventh day, and then, by th- then God came down on Mount Sinai and instituted the, the Sabbath in the law of Moses. Well, the scribes had built up this big uh, fence, big guardrails around the Sabbath, and they were so stringent on what they should do that when they saw the disciples taking some grain and eating it as they're walking down through a field, uh, they said, ah, you're harvesting, you're breaking the Sabbath. And actually all they were doing was eating on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus is not violating the Sabbath, but what he tells him, he says, you're wrong because the Sabbath was not made for man. The Sabbath was not made to put man in bondage, but the Sabbath was made for man. Okay, I said that wrong. Man, okay, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. And so, like, there's this identity called the Sabbath, and it needs someone to be dominated, and man was made to observe the Sabbath. Even go back to creation, what came first? Man on day six, and then on day seven, God instituted the Sabbath, and he rested, and that was, in a sense, for man. Man is now welcomed into a complete creation. And so, he points out that the Sabbath in itself was not a place of bondage, and then he says this, he says, the Son of Man, which is clearly Jesus' title for Messiah, uh, the, the Son of God, the, the Son of David, the promised one. It's his, own, it's his own title for the Jewish ideal of Messiah. It's, it's Jesus' title for the Son of David. It's Jesus' title for the Son of God. It's his title, and meaning no one else has a, a definition for it. When you say Messiah, there's already a Jewish concept of the Messiah, and he's militant. He's coming with swords and the military to overthrow the Gentile powers in 30 AD. He's going to war with Rome. So Jesus really can't say, I'm the Messiah, because in their political ideas, it's like, ah, we know who you are. No, you don't. I can't use Messiah. Son of David would have similar things. He's coming to sit on a throne. Can't say son of David. Now, he is the Messiah. But you won't understand it the way he wants it said. He can't say son of David because uh, you're looking for the son of David who's going to set up a kingdom. He can't say son of God because it's like, well, we're all sons of God. Israel's the son of God. Uh, he just uses son of man. And it begins with a, bl- what, what, what's a son of man? Well, we're all sons of man. But when he uses it, the son of man is doing these divine things. He's doing things that son of men cannot normally do. And so by the time he gets, by the time, especially in the book of Mark, by the time we get done with the book of Mark, son of man is Jesus' definition or his vocab word for Messiah. And so he says here on this, on the Sabbath as we're eating, he says, a man, man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man, but also know that the son of man is Lord of the sabbath which right there at the end of these five things only god can forgive sins right watch this rise up and walk what's easier forgiving sins or telling the man to just walk out of the room so he's god 
down here, the Pharisees, uh, uh, the scribes, they come and attack him, and he ends up giving them a little bit of a teaching, but then they end up saying, so that you know that the, uh, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. I, I'm the one who created the original, I was God who rested on the Sabbath. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I made the Sabbath. Now, there's just not an, any kind of a Jew or any kind of a, a rabbi or teacher can come by and say, welcome, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. When you say you're Lord of the Sabbath, see, some people say that when he makes that comment that, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, so because of that, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, that would mean, watch, man was, the Sabbath was made for man. Man being God's creation, man. When he says Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, He's not saying mankind is Lord of the Sabbath because that would mean man could do whatever he wanted to with the Sabbath. Man was given the Sabbath, but he was supposed to honor the Sabbath. When he says Lord of the Sabbath, he's talking about someone who is, is a man, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. They're over the Sabbath. They're the ones, they're not just the average man, they're not just you and me. The Sabbath was made for man, but the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who instituted the Sabbath for man, basically saying, once again, I'm God. And so that's what you see in Mark chapter 2 is just a barrage of Jesus revealing who he is and the rabbis and the scribes just staggering trying to figure it out. And so now we go to Mark chapter 3. And it's going to be, again, you keep thinking, but you're going to see a similar thing take place right here and, and to get out of your Sunday school mind, and you know the story. But Jesus could have handled this. If Jesus was more Christ-like, he could have handled this a lot nicer than he does. Because things get way blown out of proportion. Tempers get heated up. People are plotting murder. All because Jesus didn't handle this the way it could have been handled. Well, here, I can show you how he should have handled this as a good Christian. Chapter 3, verse 1. Another time, he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, let's not make a big scene. Let's step out back, and after I finish the service, I'll pray for you and we'll have a healing and you can slip off and that's because I really care about you, but I don't want to cause a commotion. No, no, that's not what Jesus, they're looking for a a reason to accuse Jesus. So Jesus, not wanting to cause a conflict, avoided the whole situation. In fact, he didn't go to synagogue that day. He went to another town and came in with a disguise so no one would recognize him because he wanted to honor God and not cause commotion. No, he goes to the synagogue. And when he sees the shriveled man, he says, stand up in front of everyone. Stand up. Let's make a a show. Then Jesus asked them, which is, he has a man, so they got this shriveled. It's not very nice to treat a handicapped person. Like, here's a handicapped man, probably just wanting to, you know, not be made a big scene. Jesus takes a handicapped man and makes a big scene out of it. I got to read through this and not start teaching. Here we go. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent, which means in in the Greek-Roman culture, you've lost the argument already. When you have nothing to say, it's like you're done. You, You just gave up. It's like getting pinned in wrestling. He looked around at them in anger. See, not very Christ-like and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. You can, you can see very clearly the mistakes Jesus made in that whole social interaction there with these two opposing political parties. In fact, he took two opposing political parties and united them. The, the Herodians support the Romans and are, are, are backed with the support of the Roman legions. The Pharisees are opposed to the Herodians, and the Pharisees are the patriots who are opposed to Roman occupation. But because of Jesus' behavior right here, 
He took two opposing groups, two enemies that didn't get along, and united them against his own efforts. If he would have gone to seminary and had some leadership training classes, he could have avoided this kind of a problem. Verse 7, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. We'll refer to that again later. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him. Now, because of the crowd. Now, do not think they're at church. Do not think these people have come because they're worshiping God. They have come because they're fallen creatures. They've got problems. They've got deformities. They've got sicknesses. They've got demons. You're going to see it next. They've got demons. And they found a, uh, an escape method. It's like, I mean, the simplest example is a celebrity shows up, steps out of their concert, out of the arena, out of their game, wherever they're at, and a, they walk right into the crowd of fans. What's going to happen to them without, without a bodyguard? I mean, they just walk out. They're going to get mobbed. They're, they're not, maybe they're worshiping them. Maybe they're honoring them. But they want their autograph. They want to touch them. They want to get a selfie. They want to, and they're going to get crushed. It's a very dangerous situation for a celebrity to just walk out in the crowd of fans. Well, same thing here. Especially when the, the, these fans are not necessarily fans. They just know they're going to get something for free. Again, it's, you know, I, mean, I don't want to mispaint the picture either before what I've read or even now. But these crowds are dangerous. They're there for healing. They're there for themselves. And well, Jesus prepares. He tells his disciples, have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. And we're going to see these words in a moment. For he had healed many so that those who were with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. The words are crushing. Whenever the evil spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! See, there's that title, Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell who he was. I don't, don't, no, we're not, they're not ready for this. You're, no, you're not my, my, my promoters. You're not on my advertising campaign. No, be quiet. Okay, that's what we've got right there for tonight. So here we go. In the notes, chapter 3, verse 1, again, he entered the synagogue, and uh, we're, we're going to assume it doesn't say Capernaum, uh, but we know it's a synagogue, we know it's a, a Sabbath, and he says again, although Mark uses the word again quite a bit, uh, it would be common to understand that he's traveling through Galilee and comes back to Capernaum, and he did last chapter, and now he's gone traveling again and has come back to his hometown, Capernaum, and he's already healed twice on the Sabbath in Capernaum. This very first time in the synagogue, in Mark, he heals someone. So they kind of caught everybody off guard. It's like, whoa. It's like, and then he leaves and goes to Peter's house and then heals Peter's mother-in-law on the Sabbath. And then after the sun sets, everyone comes. They couldn't come during the day because you couldn't do that on the Sabbath. So they wait until the sunset and then everybody came and they were up all night and he was healing people. So there's already been two healings. Jesus already confirmed two healings on a Sabbath which that indicates there's a lawbreaker here working on the Sabbath, and they're coming in to find him. And this may be a trap. They, they may be setting a trap for him. They may have gone out of their way, and you can see it. it, it they're, hoping he, they're hoping, they're watching. Well, it says right here. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Uh, withered or shriveled, the word, you can see it right there in the text, and I've got it written out in the point two. It means dried up, withered, stiffed, waste away, ripened. It means it's, it's done. Uh, and they watched, you read there, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on a Sabbath so they might accuse him. So they are there watching. They're there to see, it, watching, will he actually work on the Sabbath? And if he's a law, uh, uh, breaks the law, uh, they're going to accuse him as a lawbreaker. Now, some things that are interesting here, and I've got some of these things. Well, let's do point one so I stay in order. They watched him closely as imperfect tense, meaning hanging in suspense. They're there, and they're like, okay. They've set the trap. It's like hunting. It's like watching a bird go to a trap or watching an animal sniffing around. It's like your trap that you've got. It's like, there he is. Shh, quiet. Just watch this. And they, they've got a trap set for him. They're hoping. Now, here's the thing. And they are... They're there to accuse him and find fault. 
They're not there to test. You see, when those are, they're not there to test to see, can he heal? See, it's not, can he heal? I don't know. Let's see if he can heal. No, yes, he can heal. Well, if he can heal, is he God? Well, he's already proven in chapter 2, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, they're not there saying, I think he's a magician. I think it's a sleight of hand. I think we, if everybody watches from a different angle, you can see that this is staged. That's not the question. They're not trying to see, I think he's faking it. Do we even know this guy? Is that hand really shriveled? Someone go, go touch the hand. No, that guy is crippled. Jesus can heal. That's why they're there, because he's already done it. So the, he, yes, he can heal. Is he God? It's like, yes, but we don't want him to be. We, well, he, we, he's a, we need him to be a lawbreaker. If he breaks the law, then we can kill him. See, can he heal? Yes, but that's not what we're interested in. Is he God? <laughs> sure looks like it. If we kill him, our problem's gone. And that's what's, that, they're not there testing to see if he can heal. They're there to see if he will give them a reason to kill him. They already know, chapter two's already, they already know who he is. The very first time, no one can forgive sins except God. Well, what's easier to say, stand up and walk or your sins are forgiven? So that you might know, I'm the son of man, walk. <laughs> and also forgave your sins, how come? I'm God, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath. Next question. So it's like, that's a, by Mark chapter two, the case is closed. This is the Son of God. This is the Messiah. What are you going to do about it? Well, you're going to read on. They've got hard hearts. Their hearts don't want this. It's not like, well, we don't know. They knew, but it wasn't what they wanted. So let's kill him. And so that's what's. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so they, so they might accuse him. And that's what I've got written down there. This will justify their rejection. If, they can, if he will heal, he's a lawbreaker, and according to our law, we're justified. He's a lawbreaker, and if he's a lawbreaker, we can kill him, according to our law. Yeah, but he's God. <laughs> Don't give me the details. He broke the law, and we all know the law. If you heal on the Sabbath. So Jesus, and he said to the man with a withered hand, come here. Jesus is, I mean, he's going after, and I'll tell you this, and it's pointed out in a couple of the commentaries. Uh, This time, when he says to this man, come here, and Jesus instigates the healing, it's the only time in the book of Mark that Jesus goes off and says, here, come here, I'm going to heal you. Everywhere else, the people come to him. They come and ask. They come in faith. They do an act of faith. They touch him. They do something. The crowds come, and he responds to their faith, their, their request. Their, he's responding to them wanting to be healed. Jesus, this is the only time. It's like they're, they're there to see. It's like, come here. So meaning another confirmation that Jesus is, these guys are here. Hey, let's give them what they want. Come here. I'm going to use you. Come here. And these guys got hard hearts, and we're going to finally finish, finish off right here. And Jesus apparently wants this confrontation. The confrontation will force a decision and expose their confirmation or rejection. Instead of healing the man privately, see, instead of avoiding the, or embarrassing him, he could have taken him out back. He's going to, you know, doesn't want to call attention to the handicapped man. Instead, Jesus has the handicapped man stand up and brings him up to the front. Uh, The phrase is, come here, or stand up, or arise in the middle or all the ways of translating that. And now the handicapped man is the center of attention. Uh, and then that, that's point three is where I point on there, uh, note that this is the only time in the gospel that Jesus, in the Mark, that Jesus initiates the healing. And he said to them, now, the man is standing there, and Jesus does, Jesus is not just healing this man out of sympathy, out of, out of compassion, because that's his ministry. He's going to use this handicapped man, stand up, and the man is standing there with his shriveled hand. And Jesus then says, okay, some of you need to think about what's about to take place. Is it lawful, is it, is it right to do good or evil on the Sabbath? Yes, yes, everybody knows this is the Sabbath. And everybody knows that this man has a withered hand. Now tell me, is it right to do good or evil on the Sabbath? Meaning, 
if Jesus has the ability to heal this man it will on the Sabbath, it would be a good thing. But if Jesus has the ability to heal this man on the Sabbath, and he goes, no, 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 no. I'm not going to heal him on the Sabbath. Let's wait until tomorrow when it's not the Sabbath. Then in a sense, that would be evil because you've chosen not to do good. If it's good to heal someone, it's good to heal them on the Sabbath. But if you're going to wait and not heal, then you've chosen good. So your choice right here, gentlemen, the Pharisees, the scribes, is are you here to do good or are you here to do evil? Because this man can be healed. And if you want me not to heal him, then you're siding with evil because you're preventing a man from being healed because it's this, what's more important, this man's hand or the Sabbath? Now, there are some regulations. I've got them written down here, some more things just to point out. Point two under point 1a uh, the common understanding of sickness and the sabbath at this time when life was threatened it was permissible to provide medical attention that that is the standard modus operandi at this time the mishnah itself says whenever there is doubt whether life is in danger this overrides the sabbath so even in their own writings if life was hanging in the balance we'll go with the healing. We'll, we'll, we'll go with the, the medication, whatever. Or another, if a midwife, they were allowed to work on the Sabbath because you cannot delay a birth. So a midwife could help give, it's like, oh, wait, 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 we gotta wait until the Sabbath is over before we help the mother. That was all acceptable. Same thing, they could circumcise a baby on the, on the eighth day. If the eighth day fell on the Sabbath, they could perform circumcision because that, now you got a conflict. You've got the Sabbath or the circumcision ritual. Uh, even you could circumcise a baby. You could certainly wait until the next day to circumcise a baby on the ninth day, but the law says the eighth day. So you're going to do it on the eighth day on the Sabbath? Yes, we are. We will violate the Sabbath to uphold the law of circumcising a baby on the eighth day. So I mean, you understand there there was some flexibility there, especially if life was in the balance. So Jesus says, "Do good or evil," and the answer there would be, well. Even if it's the Sabbath and you've got a chance to do good, you should do it. But refraining from healing someone on the Sabbath would actually be evil. So if you, if you're, in other words, he's setting it up. If you're against what's about to happen, you just chose the side of evil. Which leads me to the next question. Is it good to keep alive or to kill on the Sabbath? And that's the second. These are, see, the next one says, uh, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Now, see, the English Standard Version translates it to do harm. Let's see, the uh, NIV translates 3, 4. Then Jesus says, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? Uh, and if you look in the Greek text right there in the box, you can see the word evil is used. Kaka uh, but you see the word kaka is is part of the word evil right there so good or evil so that's a good translation uh, i would i would wonder again I, i'm not a bible translator and i like the english standard version right now better than i like the niv uh but i like the niv translation here better it lines up with the greek transliteration and translation there in the greek box or to do harm is uh i mean i'm not sure why they would translate it like that because it does mean to do evil so he says to do good or to do evil or to save life or to kill. Let me write that better. To save life or to kill. Now this is this right here, to save life or kill, this is your choice. This has nothing to do with this, what's going on with the man with the lame hand. Because he's not going to, Jesus is not going to save the life and if he refuses to heal him or refrains from healing him, the guy's not going to die. This is not a matter of life and death. So this question is really has nothing to do with the situation, which makes you wonder, why would the brilliant Jesus, who is the great communicator, the great teacher, who's ahead of everybody's thoughts by, like, eternity, uh, say something lame like this, save life or kill? Because they have come that day for two reasons to make sure this man doesn't get healed on the Sabbath, or if Jesus does, it's a trap to give them justification to do what? Kill Jesus. This is a question about what Jesus is going to do, good or evil. 
if Jesus chooses to good, do good, that's going to force them to go down into this box and make a choice. So if he chooses to do evil, he gets to live. If he chooses to do good, they're going to kill him. So it is really, Mark is doing a great job here. It's really ironic what they're doing. They have come on the Sabbath and set a trap. And who's doing the most work this day? The scribes, the Pharisees. They're like there. They've got all the strategies. They're up here. They came to synagogue for one reason. We're going to nail Jesus. They're They're not resting. I mean, they're in full law mode. And then when it comes time, so they're, first of all, they're working on the Sabbath. If anyone's working, they're working. They're, they're in their occupation right now trying to accuse someone of breaking the Sabbath. And then are they going to do good or evil? Then they're going to choose to do evil. They're working on the Sabbath. They're choosing evil over good on the Sabbath. And as a result of someone doing good on the Sabbath, they're going to choose to kill. On the, so their Sabbath comes down to violating the Sabbath, doing evil, and planning on killing somebody. And Jesus is just like, and what? Well, here. They, they, it's like, well... Not, that's not all going on in their mind. Let's read this again. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. It's like, he's asking them, give me an answer. They're just like, they got nothing. Because they're the ones working. They're the ones choosing evil. And because of their work, and they're wanting evil, they don't want this good, they're going to be the ones that are going to go out and plan on killing. All that's taking place, they're, they're so far off base. And uh, so that's what you see right there. That's what the two questions. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do, good, to do good or evil is about the man and what Jesus is going to do? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life or kill? That's a question that goes beyond the lame man and up to what their intentions are of, of, with Jesus. Uh, and the point two on page three, uh, those are the th- A, B, and C. Those are things I just said. Working on the Sabbath, doing evil on the Sabbath, and killing on the Sabbath is what they're doing. Chapter three, verse five. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Keywords: anger, grieved, and hardness of heart. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now again, it really... If I could say, stretch out your hand, and it was healed, would I even be able to justify in a court of law sending you a medical bill? Now, if I had an anesthesiologist, and we put you out, and I cut your hand, arm open, I did all the surgery, connected the nerves, okay, there might be a several thousand dollar bill coming. But if I said, stretch out your hand, it's like, oh, and here's the bill. I mean, you'd be like, wait a minute. You did nothing except, I don't know, you didn't do anything. It was God that did it. But they consider that working. And so anyway, uh, the word Jesus had anger. Uh, orge is the word. It means anger, wrath, passion, punishment, or vengeance. So as he, he sees them and their attitude and their silence and everything that's going on, he knows their hearts. He's angry. It's, it's a wrath. It's a passion. He's He's containing him. He's, he's, God will unleash his wrath on earth someday. The judgment will come. Jesus is holding that wrath back as he's looking at these people right there. He is the God of wrath. He is the God that will bring the judgment. And he could have brought the judgment right there, but he's experiencing the anger. Now, again, I, I can get angry. I can have anger. And there is a place for, even the Bible says in Ephesians, be angry and sin not. Now understand, we'll talk about anger just briefly. Anger in itself is not a sin. Anger is an emotion that is appropriate at certain times. If you see certain things being done in the world and they, it doesn't make you angry, we're right back to this. If you see certain things being done and you're like, I'm, I'm not angry, okay, then you're evil. You should be very angry. Because by Ephesians, it's a command. Be angry and sin not. So you can be angry and in your anger be sinful about it. How you respond to your anger is the sin if you respond incorrectly. Anger itself is not a sin. Otherwise, you've got Jesus sinning right here. He was angry in his anger. He, he looked at them in anger. 
but he did not commit a sin. He has an emotion of like, this is wrath. Now, me, I, I'm not God, so I can be angry, but I'm not going to bring about the wrath of God. Uh, but Jesus will, and we know, pour out his wrath someday. That wrath will come to those individuals at the appropriate time. So he was angry, but it's like, you're going to have to wait for it. And, and again, uh, it, uh, grieved, it means to be moved to grief. Uh, and the Pharisees had hardness of heart or stubbornness of heart. Heart is the, in, in Hebrew, now again, you've, you've got the Greek ideal of the heart, you've got the modern ideal of the heart, you know, soul, spirit, intellect, mind. In the Hebrew, the heart was the seat of the mind where all the emotions were. So, in their heart, their heart is hard their emotions are rejecting they 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 don't like jesus they're against you in their mind they've come to the conclusion they've come to the conclusion he is god i mean they they're not trying to disprove him that they they, they're not trying to demonstrate that he's faking or uh, fooling people they know what he is but they've got to somehow come against him and he's grieved at the hardness of their heart that, that, that they've come to this point that they understand, and this is the thing that takes place today. There are people, there are people that reject Jesus, they reject God, they reject the concept of salvation through Christ, the concept of sin, not because they can't wrap their mind around it, not because it's such a hard thing, it's because they don't want it. They, they're, they're hard-hearted. And hard-hearted means, hard is to see the mind in the Hebrew, I write that in point A, and B, their heart created spiritual blindness and a resistance to god so when someone is spiritually blind they've got a veil over it you can talk to them you can share with them jesus christ can show up at their synagogue and demonstrate to them that he's god but the hardness of their heart puts a veil over and they cannot respond why can't they respond well because god has made them blind no, because their heart is hard. They don't want it to be true. They pull a veil over their eyes. I don't see anything. We're going to kill you, and we're going to justify doing it. Well, let's pull the veil back. Aha! Romans 1. The existence of God is evident. Everyone knows. There's no one on Judgment Day. This is absolute truth. This is, I think, biblical doctrine. There's no one on the Day of Judgment going to be like, oh! I didn't know if I if, if I had another chance I'd go no if you had another chance you'd go back because you're so terrified of what's coming and you'd try to change it but you can't change because your heart is hard you could never be saved you could never come to Christ because you didn't want to come to Christ well now that he's revealed himself I would even the demons believe and tremble the demons is like, well, if we only had known, they, they know who he is. James, Jesus' brother, writes, the demons believe, and they tremble. I mean, oh, I believe in God. Okay, good. The demons believe in God, and they tremble because there's nothing they can do about it because they're doomed. And if, you've got, if you know there's a God and you've hardened your heart, you pull the veil down, and you're protecting yourself in this bubble of like, well, you know, there's a lot of theories, and evolution could be true, and all. Oh, well, there's also this idea, and, and who's ever seen God? Plus, I know some Christians that aren't very Christian. I would never want to be like them. Oh, okay, well, welcome to eternity. This is Jesus. Uh, you probably didn't know he existed. Yeah, I've known he's existed my entire life. No one is going to be surprised. There are no real atheists in the world. There's no one that's an atheist that says, I, I don't believe in God. No, you believe in God. You know there's a God. You've just veiled yourself. This is right here an example. Jesus was angry and grieved at the hardness of their heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, you say, well, if they had only had some evidence, Jesus angry, grieved at the hardness of their heart because they've already made their decision. It's like, this is going to do you no good. I mean, I'm going to heal this guy, but it's not, going to, it's not going to sway your opinion. Stretch out your hand. You're doomed. There's nothing they can do. They're done. It's like, and so it's not like if he, he's going to do a miracle, and they're going to go, oh, oh, now we believe. No, you should have believed ahead of time. Or you could have believed ahead. Again, that's not saying that a miracle or some confirmation can't open someone's eyes or sway them one way or the other. 
But at the same time, you do have that Exodus generation that saw the Red Sea part and saw they ate manna every day and they all died in the wilderness of unbelief. I mean, you're eating manna every day. And saw the Red Sea part, saw the 10 plagues. And it's like, well, I just don't trust God. It's like, so right, the point right there is miracles don't create faith. If I just saw a miracle, I'd have faith. Well, actually, if you saw a miracle, it wouldn't even be faith because it'd be evidence right there. So that's another whole conversation. Chapter 3, verse 6. After Jesus was grieved, angry, their hearts, hearts, hearts were hard. Uh, he said, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand, and it was restored. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And again, I pointed this out as we went by. The Pharisees were a religious group that were patriotic, conservative Jews holding to the traditions of the people. The Herodians were riding the new wave as China was marching in. They were siding with China and letting China buy up all the property there that they were the, the Chinese supporters. And so you got the, the mega crowd and the Chinese crowd. Now they're, they're against each other. But all of a sudden, when Jesus shows up, both the mega crowd and the Chinese crowd, they all joined hands together and came against Jesus. Which, I mean, right here, you look at your political situation, and you've got the Democrats and the Republicans and how vastly different they are. If Jesus showed up in that situation, they would unite together against Jesus. And, you know, I've got my political affiliations, but I believe the human heart, if it be the conservatives and the liberals, in the human heart they would both unite against the word of God and against Jesus Christ. Now, again, I think there's, there would be Christians in both groups. I, you know, I've got opinions. Uh, but left to themselves, left to their own political agendas, both the red and the blue, both the donkey and the elephant would come against Jesus Christ, left without uh, salvation, without revelation. So here's the Pharisees. Paul was a Pharisee. These are the guys that follow the law. They know the Bible and they side with the Herodians, which is, I mean, that if you understand, again, I've, I've explained it to you a little bit, but that would be like saying again, the mega crowd went out immediately and held counsel with Pelosi and Schumer on what they could do to come against Jesus. If you could, Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi came together on what we could do about Jesus. There, does that make sense now? <laughs> okay, now we're making some traction. But that, that's how radical that statement is. I mean, we, we're so used to reading the Bible, and the Pharisees and the Herodians, yeah, yeah, they're, they're all bad people. It's like, yeah, but if you were living at that time, you would either be, most likely, you'd either be a Pharisee or a supporter of the Pharisees or a supporter of the Herodians. And if you're a supporter of the Herodians, you want nothing to do with the Pharisees, but all of a sudden, you see on the news that they're coming together and there's this third uprising party. Uh, anyway, that, that's what's going on right there, which is flat out interesting. Now, chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. That would be the Sea of Galilee. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea. Now, what we got right here is just the reaction. Now, there, a lot of things are happening. What you've got here is a decision by at least this group of Pharisees decided we're going to kill Jesus. We're in chapter, coming out of chapter 2, chapter 3. They've already decided to kill Jesus. Jesus, he's already said the, the bridegroom is going to be taken from them. So Jesus knows where this is going. And he's just poking at the bear, getting everybody making decisions. Some of you are going to kill me. He's just poking at the bear, find out, you know, let's get this going. We're heading this way. Three years. I mean, he can take this thing in three years full circle. Now, here is Galilee, Jordan, Dead Sea. I'm going to shorten this up a little bit, give me a little more room down here. And then you're going to have to get rid of Mark up here because i got to get up here in Phoenicia. All right. Here's the Mediterranean coast. Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And then it says Idumea. That's Edom. That's down here. Then the other side of the Jordan, we're over here in Perea. This is Herod Antipas territory. And then it says Tyre and Sidon up here. And so this is this is now Phoenicia. This is now Gentile territory. So understand what's taking place. They're in Capernaum, say right here. While all this is happening in Capernaum, people are coming from Galilee, 
They're coming from Judea, obviously Jerusalem. That's where all the religious leaders are coming from. They're coming from outside of Israel, from Idumi, although that's been brought in. That's Haswanians. That's another whole story there. Herod's, Herod is an Edomian. Herod is an, from the Edomites, so that they're coming from down south. This is now the Negev going down south. From over here, this would be Perea. They're coming from across the Jordan. They're probably coming up and coming across this way, or they could be crossing somewhere here. And they're coming from the north. So this is, they identify from Galilee, south Judea, south Edomia, east over here, other side of the Jordan, north from Gentile territory up here. So this is what's happening because of Jesus being in Capernaum. They're coming from all around. And look, look at these people. They're coming because they love the Lord. Now be careful right here. When you see the crowds, the, the, the Christian idea, if their crowds are following Jesus, they're you know, singing hymns and they're singing hallelujah choruses and you know, they've probably got their lives all right. You know, and they're doing a great job. They're witnessing, handing out tracts, tipping the waitresses as they go through all the towns and stop at all the restaurants. Uh, they're probably just the greatest people. You know, have a convention there of Jesus followers. If that were true, uh, that's really not, these are not Jesus followers. These are not Christians. These are people that want healing. A key phrase right there, want. We have problems, and he's got magic. Now, again, you're going to get a wide range. You've got some disciples that, that understand, they know, but even his 12 disciples don't fully understand. They, they're just waiting for him to march on Jerusalem. You can see that up until the very last week, they're just waiting for Jesus to march on Jerusalem and take over. Because James and John, you know the story, as, they're com- as the last week, and it's in the book of Mark, when they, they're in Jericho, on their way into Jericho and around this area, on their way to the last, the week, the last week of Jesus' life, James and John's mom, Come and ask Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can James and John sit on your right and on your left? Now, that would be, sound nice if my mom asked when, when you come into your kingdom because we'd be talking about this distant time period far, far away in a galaxy you know, that hasn't been explored yet. Can Galen have a special place in the kingdom? Yeah, that, okay, that's understandable uh, because it's like whatever. But she's thinking i need to get this request in and get it moving through the get the paperwork started because we're going to take over jerusalem we're we're like a month away from james and john's and so jesus talks to her so i mean even the last week the disciples are jockeying for position for the kingdom that is coming so they they don't even even his close disciples aren't really there in a sense following jesus like we would think about the new testament so these crowds that are coming are they want uh, they, I would say they're, they're dangerous. So get, get that in your mind as you read this. this. This is a, Jesus is ministering to them, but his fan club is going crazy. Uh, chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, with a, the great, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. They didn't hear about him. This, this is going to be come up in John chapter 6. It's not about him. There's a difference between following Jesus for him and following Jesus for all that he's doing. Uh, if it's the person of Christ, you're getting on the right track. If it's what he can do for you, I would say you're pretty elementary. You're, you're, you've got a few things to learn. And I, I went through that phase. I know, I, I can speak from personal experience, that when I first really started, you know, I became a Christian. First of all, I became a Christian because I don't want to go to hell, okay? It's like, well, I just love the Lord. No, I heard about hell and the consequence of sin. It's like, this is my way out. I don't want that. Yes, I'm coming. I accept Christ. I confess my Lord and Savior. Whew, did you? You did. You should because you're going to go to hell if you don't. I mean, it's like, why did you come to the Lord? Well, because I just felt, I wanted to say, I realized I was in need. He was the answer. He saved me. Okay, good enough. But then as the next thing that was revealed to me, was, well, God can solve problems. And I got into the, the Word of Faith charismatic movement. And then it's like, well, you know, if you're struggling in life, He can solve all your problems. And He wants you to have the best life now type of attitude. It's like, really? Because I was one of these guys right here rushing to Capernaum. It's like, I want, I want, I want. I just went not to Capernaum. I went to Tulsa. Looks like a just different place, different side of the world, but we went to Tulsa. <laughs> and it's like for about three years, I'm up there wanting, wanting, wanting. It's like, 
And it's like, but I'm reading the Bible at the same time. And Jesus that I went to see in Tulsa wasn't there. Although the, the congregation was, the band was, the pastors were. But the Jesus that, that I was finding, it's like, it, I didn't find the Jesus I wanted. And so it's like, and then I read the book of Job <laughs> while I was down there. And I actually taught through the book of Job. And it's like, oh, this the this really rocks my whole theology because, I mean, Job lost everything. Job was so faithful, he lost everything. It's like, well, that, that doesn't line up at all with being faithful and seeking the Lord, and then you're going to lose everything. They went to get healed. What happens if you're like Job, you go to the Lord and you get sick? It's like, well, now you got to make a decision. Are you here for the health or are you here for the Lord? And that's, I mean, really, that's a real decision. I mean, I'm, I'm simplifying it here. Uh, but li- the life will teach you that. Anyway. The whole point here, there's these crowds that are following him, and I would, I would, I would, tonight I'm going to say, dangerous crowds. They're they're followers. They're not there to kill him, but they are not under control. They're a crowd with a sin nature with desires. Uh, and if you have any question about that, just imagine. Remember the crowd on Palm Sunday. Blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. And they knew that, man, they're going to take Jerusalem because these guys are, and at the end of the week, what are they shouting? Crucify him. I mean, you know that's a, t- that's a typical Easter story. So the crowd, within a week, there's a total pivot in a week. In John chapter, oh, we're not in John chapter 6. I, I said it's in, it's in John chapter 6, not Mark. But in John chapter 6, you see the very crowd that, he, and you know this, he multiplied the bread for them. And they came back, he went around the lake, went to the other side of the lake, and they came rushing around the next morning. And he says, hey, hey, you, you didn't, you're not following me for me. You're following me because you want more bread. That's right. You gave us bread like Moses gave bread. Where's breakfast? And then he says this, and this is what he, he split, the, he, he, he sunk the ministry right here. He says, no. He says, the bread I ha- you don't know anything about. He says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my body or drink my blood you you have to eat my flesh i am the bread of life and they're like that's weird it's like we just want bread like moses gave a manna it's like no it's me the bread was have you ask who is this i am him we don't want you where's the where there's no no food today this is stupid why did we come with you're like everybody else and jesus turned to his disciples says you want to leave? And then Peter says, where else will we find the word of life? It's kind of like, all right. So at that time, he took his huge crowd, reduced them to about 12 guys. Then one of them was going to betray him. I mean, so it's like, don't, have, don't, don't be impressed with the crowd. I mean, Jesus is doing a good job. Many believers are going to come out of that crowd, but the crowd doesn't really understand. Even the disciples don't fully understand. And I'm teaching tonight, and I fully don't understand. But I'm going to continue to teach as if I have any kind of a clue. Chapter 3, verse 9. And he told his disciples when he saw this crowd coming. He said, well, I don't think that's the case. Well, when he sees the crowd coming, he tells the disciples, get a boat ready. Why? Well, there's going to be a couple reasons for the boat. One is going to be escape, possibly. Uh, but get a boat ready for him because of the crowd. He wants a boat because of the crowd. Lest they you say, well, now there's two reasons that you can say he wants a boat. And he's going to use, this is going to be a style that he's going to use many times. Because if you put him in a boat and let him go off the shore a little bit, the crowd can stand on the shore. He can sit out there like on a platform and speak to the crowd. Okay, so it's, it's a good speaking, uh, like think of uh, George Whitfield and all those guys being the, 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 the original, the uh, awakening that we had in america they're out in the fields they find a nice place to speak where they could their voice would project well jesus is doing the same thing so that is true he's on a boat so he can project his voice and speak to the crowd that's on the shore but that's not what it says here in the text and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd so they could hear him better that's not what it says lest they crush him because they're come they're squeezing they're not here to hear him we're, no, no, shh, I can't hear what he's saying. This is going to be important. This is, this is, is going to be my life verse right here. They're, they're, no, they're, they're not here to hear him teach. Touch me, heal me. I, I got some things to say. No, they just kept mobbing him. So they're not there for a Bible lesson. They're there to get healed, lest they crush him. 
Um, and that's point two on page five. The crowd, were cr- the crowd were crushing him. They were not there for discipleship, but to gain healing. They were not there to worship, but to take. The people were crushing, uh, were a crushing crowd. And first chapter three, verse 10, for he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him. There you got the word crush. And now you've got the word press. Verse nine, crush. Verse 10, pressed around him to touch him they're not there to hear the word of life they're here to touch him because he's got like a a voltage he's got some kind of power it's like some kind of spell it's magic if you can touch him you'll get healed well you're you're coming to the right place but you've got some things to learn point one the word press in chapter three verse nine is the word also could be translated oppress the word crush in chapter three verse ten can mean attack so instead of saying press and crush, those were the same words used for oppress and attack. That, I mean, that's not what they're doing. They're not attacking him, and they're not oppressing him, but that's the same words you'd use if they were pressing and attack. They're coming in on him. It's not a, pos- it's not a positive vibe here. And along with that, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, now what, this is pretty cool, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. Two things. They fell down before him. When, whenever someone came up, if, they, if their disease was, it was, it involved the demon, or if they just came up and they had demon possession, when they got up to them, the demon would just collapse in front of Jesus. They were just, whatever the power the demons had over the people or the person, when they got in the presence of the Son of God, they just, they just submitted. They just, I got, wrote it down. The demons fall down before, quote, because their authority and position were overcome by the presence of Jesus. They fell down in defeat. They were overwhelmed. They were succumbing to the Son of Man. He's just standing there, and when a demon gets in his presence, they just like, they're just, their authority, their power is just, they're not bowing down in worship. They're bowing down, and just, they're just falling in defeat. They're just, their demons are just falling off. And they try to talk. They try to explain. They, they, they don't call him the Son of Man. We know who you are, it says right here. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. As they approached this man, they realized, Oh my gosh, this is not just another teacher. This is, we've seen you, we've known you from eternity past. Well, again, depending on when demons came into existence. But they've known him since their beginning. It's like, we know, they've had conflict or confrontation with him and his armies from the days of the flood and then before. Uh, and he gave strictly ordered them, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And the word ordered is also the word rebuked. It means to mete out due measure. It means to censor. He says, do not stop talking. And two reasons, like we've talked about this before, two reasons he did not want them talking about him is one, they're deceiving spirits. They're not going to present him the correct way. They're going to give their slanted view of the deity of Christ or the Son of God. I don't want you talking. No, we don't want, I don't want anyone to hear anything you've got to say. You're not allowed to speak here. Paul talks about doctrines of demons. And sometimes the doctrine of demons sounds good. For example, Paul used the illustration, uh, they forbid certain foods and to abstain from marriage, which sounds, oh yes, abstain from marriage, be very holy and don't get involved in marriage or sexuality or abstain from certain foods. Oh yeah, a little bit of self-discipline. It's like, no, no, no. Paul identified those are doctrines of demons. That is not God. That is not Jesus' teaching to avoid marriage and avoid food. That does, have, that's, that, that does you no good. That's not it. But yet, the demons would teach stuff, or said they will teach stuff like that. Paul talks about it. So if a demon started talking, they, would, they had the ability to make it sound good, sound. It wouldn't be like, you know, go off and kill all these people or go off and murder all the, they, they, they could, they would. But their deception would be just enough to get you off track. But also, any truth or revelation that they could share is revelation that this crowd, look, see the crowd? That crowd is not ready for a spiritual, eternal, spiritual warfare. Demons, I remember when I saw the battle of, you know, whatever. And they got all this insight. It's like this crowd is not ready for anything, uh, you know, some kind of pagan religious God experience of the, you know, the gods fighting in the heavens, which they could tell you stories about. But it's like they got Jesus, no. 
I don't want you testifying about me, and I don't want you sharing any of your insights. It will just, and I would say, it's just going to mislead the people or it's going to confuse the people. They are still trying to figure out who I am. And I, Jesus would say, I will tell them my way and in my time who I am. And that's Jesus. This looks like chaos. I mean, I'm gonna, you know, especially as I'm teaching, it looks like, but Jesus, it's, it's, it's all, it's working a pattern. He knows what he's doing. Uh, he's revealing himself and he's revealing hearts. People are making decisions. That crowd, some of them are coming, obviously, and they're being healed and are going to continue to pursue what just happened to me. So I would say some of them are coming to Christ. Uh, I doubt someone's coming from Idumea. Uh, you know, I, I don't I'm, you know, that they, they're hearing that I've been sick my whole life, or my family members have been sick their whole life, and there's a guy up here that can heal them, they're going to go up here to get healed. They, and when they meet him, just like I went to Tulsa, and I learned a lot more than I went for, and I didn't get what I went for. I went for something, I didn't, it wasn't there, it didn't exist, but I got something, something bigger, something better. And saying these people are coming up for healing, Jesus will heal them, but if they have hearts that are open, they're going to learn a whole lot more and get a whole lot more than temporal healing. They're going to get the light of life that's going to shine into eternity for them. And the healing was like, oh, well, yeah, I did get healed that day. I, I forgot about that because I met Christ that day too. You got healed, but the bigger deal is you met Christ. And some are going to get healed and, and go away. So anyway, that's Mark chapter 3. You can kind of see the tension. And again, Mark is writing very rapidly through these things. The stories are short. Obviously, it takes you, you know, two and a half minutes to read it and i explain it for an hour so again mark is writing clippity clippity clip as he's going through this book i'll pray and then we're done father we do thank you for the chance to look into these things we do ask that we would pursue your word pursue jesus christ and allow the holy spirit to lead us in a way that is truthful that is honorable that you can use us in a way that is uh, not just transforming us but is helping uh, helping you reach the world and bring about your kingdom we do thank you for the opportunity to live at this time in history and ask that we may walk in a way that is worthy of the calling you've given us in jesus name we pray amen well thank you for your time